Good morning. We're rolling along in a series. We're well into it. In fact, we're almost at the end of it. Uh, we just have a couple more weeks. Uh, we're going to wrap up in the next two, and then we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday together, and then we'll be on to new things. But um, we've been in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We're calling it Origins. We're looking at our origin story through the lens of Israel and how they would have understood uh, their origin story. Uh, so that we can know how to live today. We're learning who we are and who God is based on how this story uh, begins. And uh, we're doing this on Sundays as well as on Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock on Zoom. I've said this again and again, but you're always welcome to join us uh, for that kind of further discussion. And uh, today we're in the third week of Noah. We've been doing the Noah story for two weeks And I had to break the news to John that he was going to have to teach the Noah story to our kids for a third week in a row. And he wasn't thrilled about it. I'll just say that. There's some loose ends that we have to wrap up with the story that end up changing uh, some things for us that are really important to see. And we have a lot of ground to cover, okay? So you ready? You got your thinking caps on? Your eyes wide awake? You're ready to go? All right, if you're going to follow along, we're in Genesis 8. And we're going to start in verse 18. And again, I'm pulling from some different pieces of the passage because of what we need to see together, okay? We're going to focus on uh, the promise and the rainbow that come at the end of the story. Genesis 8, 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God, this is uh, chapter 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Verse 8, Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Now I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you, Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. All right, Uh, I asked if you guys were paying attention. Are you ready for a little quiz? Thanks for being honest. I'm going to give you one anyway. We're going to start easy or we're going to get harder. There's only three questions, okay? So you get two out of three, you pass. So the first question is, 
What is the symbol that God puts in the sky at the end of the flood? Okay, that, see, that was really easy. All right, question number two. What does the rainbow symbolize? A covenant. Okay, what is that covenant? The world's no longer going to have to endure the unmaking due to a flood ever again. Okay. Great. That's, that's a good answer. Here's the third question. This gets tougher, okay? Why does God feel it's important that we know that, there won't, that the earth won't be destroyed ever again through a flood? He, he could forget, yeah? So he's communicating the seeds of another plan, okay? I like that answer. Yeah, he's reestablishing trust. He's, um, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, so God's going to remember something about the decision that he's made this day that's going to be important for, for the rest of time. So this is, this is often the frame that we look at this story through, is, is that it, it essentially boils down to the fact that God keeps his promises. Right? God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And that's true, Okay? That is a big aspect of this story. God does keep His promises, and it's good that we know that He keeps His promises, right? Amen? But the question I want to ask is, is that all God is saying? Is that all He's trying to communicate? And there, there's a hint in the word rainbow itself, you know? So uh, in Hebrew, the word rainbow doesn't have the word rain in it. It's simply the word for bow. Now, I know like some of you like to use a bow. Um, some of you have seen movies where people use a bow. What are bows used for? Shooting arrows. Yeah, that's a, on a very basic level. So a bow is a tool, right, that's used for hunting or war. Now, I'm, I, I won't show my ignorance and talk any more about bows. I already did that with, uh, with automatic rifles a few weeks ago. But um, it's, a, it's a tool. See, we don't, we don't think of rainbows this way, uh, but apparently ancient people did. In fact, one of Israel's ancient Near Eastern neighbors, they also have a flood story. Uh, it's the nation of Assyria. And in their version of the flood story, it gets wrapped up at the end, and God, or the gods, a god, appears, and, um, and, and a rainbow shows up. And the difference is, though, that it depicts not uh, just a rainbow, but it depicts actually two hands coming, reaching out of the clouds. One hand is open, which symbolizes blessing and peace and prosperity. And the other hand is closed, holding a bow. Now, what's the, what's the message that the Assyrians are to take from the result of the resolution of this story? Yeah, it's a carrot and a stick. If, if you're good, then you'll receive our favor and you'll get blessing as a result. But if you're bad, well, you get the bow. And what's the bow? It's a symbol of war. And the war that, that the gods, quote-unquote, um, thrust upon the world was through the medium of water. If you're good, you get the blessing. If you're bad, you get the flood. So be good, for goodness sake. We don't think of bows that way, right? 
uh, but a bow for them did not evoke warm fuzzies. Uh, it wasn't associated with kittens and care bears and unicorns. A bow was a threat of violence, a threat of war. I think, though, that I, I was taught a certain way to understand the rainbow and the flood, and may, maybe you were too. And it never used these words uh, explicitly, but this is kind of the message behind the rainbow, that the rainbow had a sort of similar double-edged nature to it. Not that we should be good for goodness sake or good or else, but that we are fundamentally bad and evil. And that the rainbow, as pretty as it is to look at, is actually communicating the fact that God could kill us if he wanted to. In fact, he would be justified to do so if not for the fact that he is a God of grace who gives people what they don't deserve. That he's not going to kill us ever again. He could but he won't. We deserve it, but he won't. And that this is the content of God's promise. I was never taught to think of it this explicitly, but if you follow it to its logical end, this is what it's saying. That it's actually right to look up at a rainbow and say, I should be dead by now, but God has decided not to kill me. That the rainbow is God withholding the punishment that I deserve. And this, I'm told, is what love looks like. But friends, today, today, actually, I think we can proclaim some good news. That God doesn't just withhold punishment that we deserve. God offers healing that we desperately need. That when our minds and hearts only know how to grasp for what we need through evil methods that end up destroying and bringing chaos, God himself becomes what he wants us to be. Self-limiting, self-emptying for the sake of empowering love. That our God is not a God of meticulous control, but He is a God of loving permission. And, he, and as His image bearers, we are invited to see that we are not at our greatest when we are most powerful. We are at our greatest when we are most like God. Free to love, without coercion, control evil power. Two things that the rainbow in the flood story shows us. It shows us what's wrong with us, and it shows us what God plans to do about what's wrong with us. What's wrong with us, and what does God plan to do with us? Number one, what is wrong with us? Because there's something deeply wrong with us, yeah? I mean, there's a reason that the flood happened. We talked about this two weeks ago. But we, we don't tend to see the flood this way. We think of the fall primarily as happening in Genesis 3, and then the rest of it is a different story altogether. But um, what we see through Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11, which we'll get to next week, is that, this, that we keep falling. The fall keeps happening, and it, it keeps unfolding in different shapes and forms. It's like looking at, at it from another angle and another angle and another angle to see what's actually going on at the root of our condition. The truth is there is something very wrong about us and we need to know what that thing is if we're going to see this story correctly and if we're going to understand how God heals us of that thing that is so wrong. And I think a lot of our confusion around what's wrong with us is rooted in one verse. And we read it. It's Genesis 8, verse 21. This is the NIV translation that we read today. It says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. 
even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. I'm going to say that again so you catch every single word of it. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. That's a mouthful, right? Now, what's the conclusion that seems abundantly clear when you read this translation? We suck. That's a great way to put it. The conclusion that we're meant to come to is that we are fundamentally evil. And the evidence of how, just how evil and guilty we are is that every inclination, every proclivity, every tendency, every preference, can you tell I've been looking at a thesaurus this week, of our human hearts is evil all the time. From the time that we're itty-bitty babies. If we had time, I could talk about all the ways that this verse has been used to justify seeing children as fundamentally evil and the damage that that perspective has done to destroy children's sense of value, worth, and dignity and taught them how to walk through life with shame and guilt. But I don't have time. Is this the way God feels about us? Is this the message that we're intended to take away from Genesis 8 verse 21? Or are we missing something? I don't normally take issue with Bible translations, and I like the NIV. I'm the one who picked it, okay? Like, the reason that we have NIV Bibles in our chairs is because I thought that it was, and and still think, that it is a great translation of the Bible. 99.9% of the time, I take no issues with it. But I got a beef with Genesis 8, verse 21. And you just get to, like, you, you get to be in on my rant session this morning, okay? So, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm on a soapbox or a stool, whatever. But, but there are three parts of this that I just take a lot of issue with. Here's the first one. The word even though, the word even though in Hebrew is the word key, which can mean even though. But its more natural meaning is simply to say for, because, or since. In other words, it's often used in cause and effect relationships. This happened since this happened. This happened because this happened. Or at the very least, this happened for this to happen. So that's the first thing. The second one, and I'll put this all together at the end, the second one is the word inclination. Inclination uh, gives us this picture that it is our predisposition to want to do evil all the time. But the, the Hebrew word getzer also means imagination. Form, mental framework or construct, a frame of reference. It's used in Scripture to describe pottery that's been molded into a certain shape. Okay? We have a certain shape to us, a certain mental framework, a perspective that we see the, the world through, a lens, a frame. That's the second one. The third one is that the word every is not in the Hebrew. The word every is not there. It was added by translators. So let's take this new knowledge and let's see what shakes out, okay? Genesis 8, verse 21. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, since the human heart's frame of reference, its mental imagination, is evil from the time they are young. What is God saying? God is saying that that our humanity's minds have been so shaped by evil that evil is our only reference point for how to be human. This is, this is the point of the flood. 
Not that we were guilty and God punished us for being so evil. It was that we were violent and God allowed us to see what violence does when He withholds His hands of protection. The point here is not that we do evil all the time and we're guilty because of it. Even little kids are. It's that we lack a picture of what goodness looks like because our only example is each other. When we look at each other, we see the violence that brought the flood on in the first place. Our imaginations have been hijacked by sin, and we learn this framework from a very young age. Do you see the difference yet? Is it starting to, starting to come together? If you remember, we talked about this in Genesis 3, that sin is the inclination to get our very real needs met in ways that end up destroying us, destroying our relationships, and destroying the world. Ways that bring evil rather than good. It's not that we're after evil. It's that we want good things, but we bypass the good giver of those good things and we grasp for them in ways that end up destroying rather than bringing life. If you remember from Genesis 3, one of the primary consequences of sin is that we strive and we contend for power and control. Remember what God said uh, to, to Eve about Adam. He, she, he said to her, your desire will be for your husband, for your partner, but he will rule over you. You'll, you'll want to have the kind of relationships that result in people laying down power. And you will look to your partner who is meant to do that for you, but instead of laying down power for you, he will take it up and use it against you. And Genesis 8 is saying that this is our mental framework. This is the only imagination we have for how to get our needs met. We've been trained by the world to move through it with evil uh, methods because the ends justify the means. This corrupting, coercive, domineering power is the only way that we know how to live. And we learn it from when we're kids. Right? I mean, my son experienced that on the playground just this week. The fact that a bully is trying to make him feel worse to make himself feel better. What is that? That's this mental framework of, of badness and evil because the only way that this kid knows how to feel okay about himself is by putting everybody else down and making them feel worse. It's not that he's trying to be evil. Evil's just an un, un, unfortunate necessity in order to get his needs met. So God is saying here in 821, why in the world would I curse the ground and bring another flood? Because that type of unchecked power, it's the only way they understand how to go about their lives. It just reinforces their worldview. They constantly resort to retribution and control to get what they want. What they need is a new category for how to be human. They need a new reference point. They need a new picture. They need a, re a renewed mind. The good news today, family, is that God doesn't just withhold the punishment we deserve. He offers us the healing that we need. When our minds and hearts only know how to grasp for what we need through evil methods that end up destroying and bringing chaos, God becomes what he imagines, what he envisions us to be, self-emptying for the sake of empowering love. Our God is not a God of meticulous control, but a God of loving permission. And as His image bearers, we're invited to see that we are at our best, not when we are at our most powerful, not when everything is under our control, 
but when we're most like God, when we're free to love without coercion and control. What's fundamentally wrong with us is, is that we have imaginations that are hijacked by sin to the point that we only know how to get what we need and what we want through power and control. So what does God plan to do about it? Well, that's where the rainbow comes in. God says, never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Chapter 9, verse 12, he says, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. You remember what, a, what that bow symbolizes? symbolizes the tendency to take up power and use it against others. And we're told that God is hanging up his war bow. He's putting away violent power forever. And the result is that uh, days and seasons, they're going to continue on the earth. And then what God does is he restarts his creation with a new family, Noah and his wife and their sons and daughters. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. It's the same language as Genesis 2. And he makes a covenant with them. It's the first time that we've seen this word covenant be used. The word covenant means to to make a commitment and a promise to a shared future. So the, the key question here is, what has changed now? What's changed between the first creation and the second creation? Between Genesis 2 and Genesis 9? What's, what's taken place? Has, has humanity changed at all? Well, if you keep reading in Genesis 9, you'll find out quickly that it hasn't. It, it's actually continued to get worse. The only thing that's changed between Genesis 2 and Genesis 9 is that God has now decided that he is, he is limiting himself. He's limiting himself to work in and through his humans to empower them rather than to take up power himself and take creation back into his own hands. See, the rainbow in other stories, and often in the way that we've told this story, is a reminder of God's all-consuming, all-present power, right? But in actuality, it's not a reminder of God's unlimited power. It's a God It's a reminder of God's self-limitation for the sake of his love. The rainbow is a weapon that's being put away forever. It's a symbol of a God who empties himself of controlling power so that he can condescend and meet us and transform us on our level. And God begins this restoration project from the jump. As soon as God starts this project, who does he start it through? Genesis 12. Abraham, he comes to a man and his family. And how does God work through this person? Does he come down from above? No. He shows himself as a traveler and comes into Abraham's tent. He makes a covenant with Abraham, but instead of insisting that Abraham be the one to walk through the elements of the covenant, God himself comes down and he's the one who walks through while Abraham gets a nap. In other words... God doesn't come down with power from above. He comes alongside and walks side by side with those that he loves. He has emptied himself of his ability to make floods ever again. 
He is a self-emptying God. What Genesis 8 and 9 are telling us is that humanity's only framework for how to live from the time that we're children is corrupted by evil. That power and control are our only imagination for what it's like to get along in life. And that we need desperately to be healed of this condition. And since we have nowhere else to turn to, God Himself is going to embody a new way that's based on self-limiting love rather than domination and control. Are you tracking with me? This is so important to the rest of the Bible. He says, I'm going to become smaller, not bigger, so that as they watch how I relate to them, it will renew their imagination for what's possible for them because they're my image bearers. God begins this process here in Genesis to show us this is what love lives like. That love makes promises and commitments. Love empowers and gives permission. Love offers an invitation to lay down hostility, not by controlling the situation, but by being the first to become vulnerable. This is what we see God doing after the flood. A God who becomes vulnerable as he gives away his power to others. He tells, he tells Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. Go, I'm empowering you. This is a God without a weapon who allows himself to be harmed by his own creation. You see, this is completely unlike us. We believe that our well-being consists of our ability to maintain power and control, to keep it together, right? But God invites us to a different way of being his image bearers. That our flourishing comes as we lay down our power and control as we empower others to flourish. And that as we live this way of embodied trust, there will be plenty, plenty left over for us. Friends, God lays down his power through a promise and a rainbow, and then he gives this new commission to his image bearers to be fruitful and multiply. And this is the message. Populate the world with the kind of love I've demonstrated for you, and I've put it in the sky to see. Just so you can't miss it. Doesn't it sound so much like love others as I've loved you? It's the same kind of love that we see in Jesus Christ. The God who gives us his power in the rainbow is the same God who lays down all power at the cross. The good news we proclaim today, friends, is that God doesn't just withhold punishment that we deserve. God offers the healing that we desperately need. When our minds and hearts can only conceive for how to get our needs met through evil methods that bring chaos and destruction, God himself becomes what we can't be. Self-emptying, self-limiting for the sake of empowering love. And as his image bearers, we're invited to see that we are not at our greatest when we are at our most powerful, but when we are most like God, free to love without coercion and control. I think one way of seeing the entire story of Scripture, and this is why it's so key to get it here, if you don't get it here, you won't see it anywhere else, is that one of the ways to look at this story is that it is the great story of God teaching, healing, and empowering his people to live in his love. It's teaching us how to be human again by becoming human himself. Now, before we can respond, I think we have to acknowledge that part of the reason we've never seen it this way before, I'm just waking up to it myself, 
is by and large, not totally, but by and large, that we have been part of a form of Christianity in America, a people group who claim Jesus as Lord, who don't have the greatest track record for the way that we've used power. When I think of the way that the church, generally speaking, has inhabited power, I think of the ways that manipulation and shame and guilt have been used to get people to do certain things and not do other things. I think about the way that political power has been leveraged to hold on to status in society and claim that God is the one endorsing it. I think about all the cover-ups of abuse scandals because churches are built on charismatic leaders who can't be seen to fail. This is all this corruptive, evil imagination at work. And it's not just at work out there. It's at work in our camp. In other words, churches have been really good at holding on to that war bow. Especially, especially when our power and control seem to be slipping from our grasp. Much of the way that I've seen the church and, and Christians act and react in society in the last 20 years is because of a fear of losing power and control. I mean, it's even in the messaging that we use around um, who we are and what we're about as a church, like from the culture wars to like taking America back for God to like even the organization that I was part of called Campus Crusade for Christ. Like you realize like a crusade is the idea of taking something by force. This idea of taking something by force out of fear that you might lose, this is the idea behind the rainbow. And we cling to this as if it's God's way, as if it's his method, as if it's what God loves to do. When in reality, I think, I think Genesis 8 verse 21 is more true than we realize that our entire imaginations have been misshaped by abuse of power. If I'm honest, as I look out at the world, I think the church in America is at a pivotal moment in history. It's a, at a pivotal moment that we can either cling to the bow or we can follow Jesus. But we can't do both. We can't do both. So, Having acknowledged that this is the water that we swim in, let me try to help us respond. I've been having a hard time with these lately, figuring out how to do this. But let me try. As I said, I think the temptation to take up the war bow is at work in our camp. So one of the ways that we can respond today is by asking ourselves, where have I been tempted to take up that bow? Where does it feel like holding on to power and control is the only way to get what I need is another way to say it. If that's where you are, if, if the Spirit is shaking something loose for you in that area, then today God is calling you to lay it down for the way of self-limiting love. I wish I could tell you exactly how to do that, but I'm, I'm like a kindergartner in this. I have no idea what I'm doing. And if you're there too, like the good news is that if God can be faithful to Noah, who had no idea what he was doing, <laughs> and God can be faithful to us too. So that's the first way. Where does it feel like holding on to power and control is the only way that we can get what we need? Here's the second way. I realize that many of you have had this war bow used against you. 
So, where has the bow of religious power been used against you? I've talked to so many people recently who have either left the faith or who are losing faith because of the shenanigans of powerful church leaders who dominate and control and no one holds them accountable for their actions. A documentary just came out this week on Discovery Plus about Hillsong and the shenanigans that have gone on there for the last 30 years. And it's not pretty. It seems like no one is immune to the corrupting power of the war bow. So I realize, like, as a church leader, I'm often blind to either the ways that I've picked up this bow or the, or the damage that others have been inflicted by people who are like me. I've often been blind to it. And I, I'm trying to become more aware and cognizant of it. But if that is you, then I, I just, as a word of encouragement, want you to know that the weaponry of religious power is not the weapon of God. It is not God's power. It is anti-God's power. It is not Jesus. It is anti-Christ. God does not endorse or condone the war bow. In fact, he's exposing it to the light of day because he loves his church and he plans to heal it of its addiction to power. He put it away himself generations ago and he's encouraging us to do the same thing. Friends, the good news that we proclaim and then we'll pray is that God doesn't just withhold punishment that we deserve. God offers the healing that we desperately need. When our minds and hearts only know how to grasp for what we need through evil methods that end up destroying and bringing chaos, God himself becomes what we can't be. A God of self-emptying, self-limiting love for the sake of those he loves. Our God is not a God of meticulous control, but a God of loving permissions. As his image bearers, we are invited to see that we are not at our greatest when we take up the bow. We are at our greatest when we are most like God, which means laying down coercion, control, and power to empower others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are entirely unlike us in every way. When our only conception of how to move through life is to do unto others as they have done to us, and it leads to destruction, it leads to dehumanization. But God, we thank you that you don't respond to us that way. You lay down these things that we pick up and use against each other, and you say, I will never use them against you. I will become vulnerable. I'll allow you to hurt me. I'll actually give myself over to death even to demonstrate the kind of love that could free you from your addiction to this sort of evil. God, thank you that you want us. You want to heal us desperately from the inside out. You want us to become new creations. You said that it's already happened in Christ Jesus, and we just need to lay claim to who we already are. So would you allow that to happen, God? If we have grasped onto the bow of control, coercion, manipulation, guilt, shame, trying to use it against others to make us feel like we're okay, God, help us to lay it down. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if that weaponry has been used against us, God, enable us to see that you see it too and that you're making a way for our healing as well as the healing of those who've done it to us.
that this is our only hope, is you becoming one of us in order to heal us forever. God, may we, we as your church, be a foretaste of what's available for every single image bearer on planet Earth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.